Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Maybe you've heard about the three guys that were stranded on a desert island. They find a bottle with a genie in it and he offers them each one wish. The first guy wishes that he was off of the island and back with his family. Well, poof, he's gone. The second guy wishes he was back at his job earning six figures. Zap, he's gone. The third guy thinks and thinks but just can't make his mind up, so he finally sighs and says, I wish those other two guys were back here to help me decide. <laughs> that may not be a true story. <laughs> What would you do this morning if you could have anything that your heart desired? This morning we're going to eavesdrop on a man who did had that very opportunity. Look at verse 2 with me. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Religion can be complicated. Everyone has their own ideas of how they would like to worship God. Even among God's own people today, as well as in Old Testament times, people love do-it-yourself religion. Those who love music must have their kind of music in their worship. Those who love traditional ways must love the old forms that they know and love. Those who love contemporary informality, well, you get the idea. And it's very difficult even for Christian people to learn from the New Testament that worship is now trusting and obeying God in all of our living rather than something we just do on church on Sunday morning. The difficulty is suggested by the next aspect of Solomon's kingdom when we read, The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the Lord. The word still as in still sacrificing represents a small Hebrew word that signals what follows, excuse me, is some kind of contrast, that's definitely not better, or limitation to what has just been said. I'm sorry about that, guys. Better, right? Sorry, sorry. Uh, we do not know how or when or by whom the high places came to be part of Israel's life. Throughout the land of Israel, the high places or groves planted by the Canaanites were used for the purpose of worshiping their deities. 
And the Jews would use these same groves to offer sacrifice and incense to God. Over the centuries, the Mosaic Tabernacle had been neglected. And so much of the people's worship took place at high places. They were local shrines and worship centers. There were a constant temptation to idolatry. Now these high places may have been tolerated by the Lord for a time, but they represented a danger. But really, this should not have ever had happened in the first place. Why? Listen to these words from Moses found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully follow in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, have given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you are going to dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every leafy tree. And you shall tear down their altars and smash their memorial stones to pieces and burn their ashram in the fire and cut to pieces the carved image of the gods that they have. And you shall eliminate their name from that place. So, what are we to make of the statement there in verse 2? It sounds as though the practice of sacrificing in high places, which had been occasionally been mentioned over the previous centuries, has now multiplied. Instead of worshiping at the old high places, the people were called to worship God at his chosen place, which was Jerusalem. And this is what God commanded. Then why was Solomon leading his people into the questionable practice of worshiping at the high places? The law specified that God's people were only to worship at the place that he assigned. And because the Ark of the Covenant was at Jerusalem at this time, Solomon would have been much wiser and the people much safer had they offered their sacrifices and incense in Jerusalem or in Gibeon where the tabernacle was located at this time. What does that have to do with us? Some people say... I can worship God anywhere I want. I don't need to be in church on Sunday. I can go to the lake and worship the Lord. And after all, didn't Jesus preach by the lake? Even more, didn't Jesus preach from a boat? Wouldn't it then be understandable and even more theologically sound to go boating on Sunday? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us. Why? Those who don't assemble together become vulnerable to all sorts of needless pains and problems. In its infinite wisdom, the Lord has set up his church as a body because we are safer as we remain linked to one another. So true worship of God must not be do-it-yourself religion. We will hear much more about this in the following pages of 1 Kings. Verse 3, please. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he was sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. We are now told that despite the compromise that I talked about last week, that Solomon did indeed love the Lord. We should first appreciate what a striking statement this is. It is not said in so many words of any other individual 
in Israel's history. Now that is not to say, of course, that Solomon was the first man to love God, but he is the first person in whom the Bible writers have chosen to make this simple but profound statement, he loved the Lord. Of all the things that can be said about Solomon, this is the testimony placed at the beginning of the history of his reign. However, Solomon's story began with the Lord's love for him. We are told in 2 Samuel 12.24 that the Lord loved Solomon. In this, Solomon knew something of the Christian experience in 1 John 4.19, where we read, We love because he first loved us. Like the Christians, Solomon's enjoyment of God's blessing depended ultimately on God's love for him and not on his love for God. The words Solomon, the, the, the word Solomon loved the Lord are indeed wonderful, but it will soon be clear that if everything depended on Solomon's love for the Lord, then there would be no hope. Because in due course, Solomon's love for the Lord is going to be severely compromised by his love of many foreign women who are going to turn his heart away from the living God. So, Solomon's love for God was, as far as it went, wonderful and good. Far more important, however, is God's love for Solomon. Just so, we should love God. But our confidence and joy comes not from our love to him, but from his love for us. For example, Addie loves her mother Aaron, but it is Aaron's love for Addie that is the key to Addie's survival. So all was not as it seemed. Solomon's love for the Lord was not unqualified. He loved the Lord except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Throughout the book of Kings, the kings are judged by their attitude towards these high places. Good kings abolish them, mediocre kings tolerate them, and evil kings patronize them. Apparently, the king and his people were worshiping in the name of the one true God. Yet once again, the term high place has an extremely negative connotation in the Old Testament, especially throughout 1 and 2 Kings, where all its other uses are pejorative. Furthermore, verse 3 seems to present Solomon's worship at these high places as an exception to his love for the Lord. I want us to think about our own lives and the description that the Lord might give to us this morning. Is there an exception in our lives? Do we love the Lord and follow his instructions except for something in our lives that we are unwilling to give up? Do we love God without exception? Or like the products that we see advertised today, is there fine print that follows after saying that we love God? This is the problem with loving God without your whole heart and keeping a divided heart. A divided heart always is going to have an exception. There will be something that will hold us back from loving God under certain circumstances. 
That is why the greatest commandment is that we would love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So in other words, Solomon was a lot like us. He loved the Lord as every Christian does, but he also had some other loves in his life. And these will be the sinful passions that are going to have the power to destroy his spiritual leadership. This exception, which seems like such a small crack, will later become an open breach. In chapter 11, we're going to read that Solomon loved many foreign women who turned his heart away from the living God. This exception became the central issue in Solomon's life and that he had a divided heart and eventually that crack is going to become a gaping hole. He loved the Lord, but he did not love the Lord with all his heart, soul, and strength. And while there is some truth that Solomon's early life started out more positive spiritually before ending up more negative, the deeper truth is, like every other believer, he was always as much a sinner as he was a saint. So to sum up verses 2 and 3, even though technically it was not a sin at that time to sacrifice at the high places, it was still extremely unwise because of the idolatry that was associated with it. I once heard a story of a king who was looking for a driver for his chariot, which was a very high honor. The king took several potential drivers to a spot where there was a curve in the road, and at the edge of the curve there was a drop of several hundred feet. He proceeded to ask each driver how fast they could take the curve without tumbling down the cliff. Each driver gave an answer stating they could take the curve at a high rate of speed and come only within inches of the cliff. The last driver was asked a question, but he said something entirely different. He said that he would go very slowly around the curve and stay as far away as possible from the edge of the cliff. The king immediately said, thank you, congratulations, you're my new driver. In other words, we would be far wiser to stay away from questionable activities instead of seeing how close we can get to them and still remain undefiled. Look at verse 4 with me. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, because that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give to you. Wait a minute. I thought you just told us that high places were bad, and now in verse 4 it's calling one great. Now, our narrator does not tell us what made Gibeon great, but a later writer will record that the tabernacle and its altar had been at Gibeon at least since David had brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. What made it different was that the tabernacle was there, even though the Ark of the Covenant was in Jerusalem. Gibeon was such a sacred place because the tabernacle was located there. 
as a first step of the construction of the tabernacle, David had moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, but the rest of the tabernacle, including the altar of sacrifice, was still at Gibeon, located about five miles north of Jerusalem. It says Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings. Now, he couldn't have done that by himself, as it takes time to prepare whatever animal you're sacrificing. He would have had to have sacrificed an animal every minute for about 24 hours in order to do that. Now, we're given more information in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, where we are told, And Solomon spoke to all of Israel, to the commanders of thousands, of hundreds, and to the judges, and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the father's household. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place which was at Gibeon, because God's tent of meeting was there which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. So obviously Solomon had quite a bit of help in this, but the amount of sacrifices is still very impressive. But I want us to notice when the Lord spoke to Solomon. It was after he had been busy all day working for the Lord that he was blessed to hear from the Lord that night. Did you know that when Jesus called his disciples, he always found them working in some capacity? They were either fishing or tax collecting, but they weren't sitting around staring at their navels waiting for some supernatural calling. When I first became pastor, I got some excellent advice about choosing leaders, and it was this. Always look for people who are faithful in attendance and who are already serving quietly in the background. My point is, when we offer the sacrifice of praise or the sacrifice of service, whenever we find ourselves in the place of giving to the Lord, we are in a position to hear from him. We are then told that God spoke to Solomon in a dream. Now the question is, does God still do that today? I think so sometimes. But you really have to be careful that it's God's revelation and not last night's ravioli. But really, God's primary way of speaking to us is through his word. When God asked Solomon what I should give you, this is both a generous invitation and an inevitable test. And our response to such an invitation would reveal who we really are. God offers a blank check to Solomon, a remarkable act of divine generosity. But it was also a challenge for Solomon to decide his deepest values. What did he want his life and reign to be about? Look at verse 6 with me. Then Solomon said, You have shown great faithfulness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth, righteousness, and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great faithfulness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. The jarring note for many in Solomon's words is a suggestion that this kindness of God had something to do with the integrity of King David. Was it really because David had walked in faithfulness before God in righteousness and uprightness in heart? Now there are two problems here. The first is historical and factual. Any reader familiar with the history of 2 Samuel knows very well that among other things, David was an adulterer, a deceiver, and even a murderer. 
how could it honestly be said then that he walked in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness in heart? The second problem is theological. God's kindness to David, like his kindness to Israel, and indeed his kindness to the whole world, is presented in the Bible as a free gift. It is not deserved. It is not a deserved reward for the goodness of the recipient. The Bible calls this grace. The Christian experience of God's grace is classically summed up in a familiar text of Scripture in Ephesians 2.8, where we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So did Solomon, who remember was the actual son of Bathsheba, whose adulterous affair with David ended up with the death of her husband, did he really think that his father was so good that David owed him the kindness he had shown? How do we reconcile these two apparent contradictions? Yet what Solomon said was deeply true. It was very like David's own remarkable words in 2 Samuel when he said of himself, the Lord has treated me in accordance with my righteousness, in accordance with the cleanliness of my hands, he has repaid me. On the one hand, God's kindness to David had included putting away David's sin, and that meant that David's considerable wickedness was no longer held against him. This was astonishing grace. It means that those who shared God's perspective on David saw him as a forgiven, cleansed man. He had been washed clean. That means he really was whiter than snow. And that is how Solomon saw him. On the other hand, the grace of God had a profound impact on David's life. On many occasions and in various ways in his life, he really did display faithfulness, righteousness, and uprightness of heart. There was therefore a powerful connection between David's integrity and the great kindness that God had extended to him. It was not, however, that his uprightness caused God's grace towards him. No, it was the other way around. And that for us is good news, which is what the word gospel literally means. That means no matter how much or how many times you have blown it, God is willing and able this very morning to wipe your slate clean as if you'd never sinned before. But far more than that, he then credits us with Christ's righteousness and adopts us into his forever family. Galatians 4.6 says it like this, And because you are his children, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our own hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but children. And if a child, then an heir through God. And that can be true of you this very day. And if you are unsure about that, please see me. Verse 7, please. And now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. Yet I am like a little boy. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is capable of judging this great people of yours? So back to our original question. What would you do if you could ask for anything in the entire world? 
I think this is Solomon's finest moment. With the whole world laid out before him, Solomon asked for an understanding heart. And I don't think there has ever been a time in history where that is more needed than the day in which we live. We live in a time where all the lines have been erased, all the fences have been knocked down, and all the forbidden fruit has been polished and set on a basket in the kitchen on the kitchen table. As the old jingle said, in olden days a glimpse of stocking was shocking, now heaven knows anything goes. That's not an exaggeration this morning. I read this week. In January 2004, a German court sentenced Armin Mewes to eight and a half years in prison for cannibalism. He placed an ad on the internet looking for a well-built man who wanted to be killed and eaten, and a man named Bernard Brandes responded. The two men spent an evening getting to know each other, then Brandes agreed to be killed. In his testimony, Muse admitted that he didn't eat brandies all at once, but defrosted cuts from his freezer over a period of several months. But what was even more shocking than the story itself is the fact that so many people around the world rallied to Muey's defense. Both Muey's and Brandy's were seen as consenting adults who were merely just exercising their freedom. Now, sure, their actions were a little bizarre, but if that's what they want to do, then who are we to judge? One man wrote, By what right has the state interfered in their slightly odd relationship? Of course, one might argue that by eating Brandy's, Muey's was infringing on his mill's rights and acting against his best interests. But Brandy's decided it was in his best interest to be eaten, and in general, we believe that the individual, not the state, is the best judge of his own interest. That's crazy, right? What's next? Maybe people won't know what sex they are, or start identifying as a two-headed moose. All I'm saying is an extremely slippery slope when mankind starts making the rules and calling the shots. To put it kindly, our past record has not been all that hot. Now here Solomon realizes that his wisdom is like that of a child compared to leading a nation. Solomon is facing a responsibility that has completely overwhelmed him. He had been thrown into the deep end of the pool. But you know what? It's a good thing that he at least realized that he needed help. He's not like most men who would rather run out of gas than stop and get directions. I saw that hand back there, Connie. (laughs) The beginning of wisdom is truly to be able to recognize the need for that wisdom. You know you're becoming wiser when you can say to the Lord, I don't know as much as I used to think that I knew. Now, on that day, the wise person was the one who was skillful in the management of life. It meant much more than just the ability to make a living. It meant the ability to make a life and make the most out of what life might bring. 
True wisdom involves skill in human relationships as well as the ability to understand and cooperate with the basic laws that God has put into creation. Wise people not only have knowledge of human nature and of the created world, but they know how to use that knowledge in the right way and at the right time. Wisdom isn't a theoretical idea or an abstract commodity. It's very practical and it's very personal. See, the world is full of people who are smart enough to make a good living, but they are not wise enough to make a good life, as in a life of fulfillment that honors the Lord. Solomon asked God to give him an understanding heart, because no matter how smart the mind may be, if the heart is wrong, then everything else in your life will be wrong. Solomon asked more for than just great knowledge. He wanted understanding, and he wanted in his heart, not merely just in his head. Actually, that ancient Hebrew word translated understanding is literally the word for hearing. So one could say that Solomon asked to have a hearing heart, one that will listen to God. In Ephesians 1.18, the Apostle Paul prayed for the Christians, saying that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now, even though that we are not kings... And even though we don't have the same kind of level of kingdom responsibility as Solomon did, is not the God to whom he came to the same lavish and generous God that we can go to? Is this not the same God who meets us in James 1, 5, where the apostle urges, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask it of God who gives to all generously. Later, Solomon will become famous for saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. His own request right here is a perfect example because the king is going to begin his reign with a prayer for wisdom by reverently proclaiming who God is and what God has done. Here is a man who indeed feared the Lord, which for him was the beginning of wisdom. As we finish up today, Solomon's situation was unique in the fact that he alone inherited David's throne, so only he could exactly pray this prayer. But his wise request is still an excellent example for us to follow. Unlike Solomon, I am not a king, writes one commentator, but shouldn't I pray like one? Yes, we should pray like Solomon. With all due reverence, we should begin with the character of God and his saving work. And then in holy humility, we should acknowledge our own limitations, openly admitting how weak we are in things like honoring our parents, serving our spouse, raising a child, loving a neighbor, leading a ministry, sharing the gospel, or any other thing that God tells us to do. God is ready to listen and anxious to answer, so let us pray. Lord, oftentimes I feel like a child not knowing what to ask for. I can be so very selfish in my praying. I pray today you help us to ask for the things that would please you. Give us a hearing heart that can hear your voice. And when we come to that fork of the road in life, let us hear that voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. We ask this in the name of our wonderful counselor, Jesus. Amen.